we're in this Walking with God series and we're basically using some biographies, some, some people in Scripture. I just need not the usual people that give me amens or anything like that, but to move off of the money thing, just in general, is there any, any resonance? Just give me an amen and, okay. Or I'm going to feel like I did an awkward transition at that awkward transition. Um, all right, so here's Daniel. Now, backstory on this. I've been sitting on this sermon for 20 years. Uh, 20 years ago, I read the book of Daniel, and it rocked my world for some very subtle things I saw in it as a, as a, as a rather new um, student in seminary, uh, heading towards a life of ministry, and, and was trying to read the Bible as many times as I could. And when I got to this book of Daniel, there was just some things that really jumped out at me. And so I've been sitting on those for 20 years, and they've informed my thinking on a whole lot of things that you may have heard me say or maybe even have read, things like humility is never wrong. Forgiveness is never wrong. There's never a time in Scripture where humility shows up as a bad thing. There's never a time in Scripture when forgiveness shows up as a bad thing, when, when God would be like, you know, that was really dumb. That's dumb of you. Why'd you go and do that? Why'd you go and forgive? You know, we, we never see that. That's, those are ideas that I got from the book of Daniel. And so I wanted to bring, for the first time really, I've never spoken on the book of Daniel, I wanted to kind of surface what I saw in Daniel and, and kind of why it led me to believe some of those things. And the first thing we get here is just Jan, uh, Daniel chapter 1. I'm laying some context here before we get into the meat of it. But uh, Daniel is carted off um, as, as part of um, the Israelites who are going into captivity. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come and he's, he's carting off um, the wealth of Israel, both the actual wealth of Israel and then the people resources of Israel. And they want now some of the young men, verse 4, um, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, so the upper class uh, young men, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And this guy now, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, is supposed to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Uh, and so there's this interesting thing going on where you're taking young boys who still have the ability to learn, they're young, um, their minds are fresh, and you're going to use them as bridge people to learn the ways in the language of Babylon so that you can begin to assimilate these basically foreigners who are going to be in servitude to you and your people so that you can begin to manage them the way you want to manage them. So this is a business decision that's going on by this king. But he's bringing in these young people. Now, why did the Israelites get carted off to Babylon? We know from the rest of Scripture and the prophets that God had punished the, the Israelites for forgetting his commandments, for disobeying him, um, for not being uh, all the way into what it was he was wanting them to be and to do, largely about justice and how they treated their fellow man. And so he punishes them, he disciplines them, he sends them into exile. So because they were bad and they, they sinned, because they did wrong, 
they're going into Babylon. But this young kid, uh, the age of accountability in scripture is around um, 13, 12 or 13 uh, for, for, the, for Jewish young men, uh, the bar mitzvah, etc., where they become accountable to the law. Before that, they're, they're really underneath the household of their parents. Um, they're, they're untucked underneath that in, in that kind of covenantal relationship. And they come outside of it, these young men do, uh, at the age of, of 12, 13, and become responsible to God directly, not, not going through kind of the intermediary of their father. They're, they're accountable to the laws. So now the young men who are this age are taken in and they're going to be educated in the king's palace um, to become kind of these leaders or these bridge people as they grow older and learn the language. So the interesting thing here is the sin that God judged in sending Israel into captivity and disciplining them, were these young men the ones guilty of that? In other words, was Daniel the one who had sinned and therefore brought this discipline onto the nation of Israel such that they were, they were carted off into captivity? And the answer is not really. Not really. That by the time he gets to Babylon, he's still, a, he's still a young man growing up into what it means to be um, a Hebrew. And this long pattern of bad kings and, and bad prophets and of sinning, all of this stuff that's going on with Elijah and Elisha and, and all this back and forth and the people that... Uh, Isaiah was prophesying against and all of this. Daniel wasn't alive for the bulk of that. And if he was, he was a baby. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the context. So now if we flip over, um, we're going to read interesting thing in chapter 6. This is Daniel in the, in the lion's den. And so Daniel, who's known for prayer, he's, he's older now. He's distinguished himself. Um, he's found favor in the court of the king. And so they're going to trap him by creating a law that you can only um, pray to uh, the kings of the land. You can't pray to foreign gods, knowing that Daniel is a man of prayer. And so they're going to trap him. And when Daniel finds out about this, it's on the screen. Um, this is what it says he did. Now Daniel, when he learned that the decree had been um, published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Maybe leave that up for a second. Um, I haven't said this in a long time, but... One, I have, I have so many issues with the way we pray that it's not even funny. Uh, I'm neurotic on the issue of prayer. Um, and that's not entirely good. One of, the, one of the worst parts of the way I view prayer is that I'm not really a big fan of corporate prayer myself. It's not my passion point. The downside of that is we don't do corporate prayer well because of that. It's my fault. We're trying to do a better job of it. Uh, there's several people in the congregation that have kind of stepped up. So next week is an, another one of those weeks where if you want, at the end of the service, you're going to be able to come down and receive prayer. 
Uh, the staff is trying to do a better job of it, elders and lead team, but that's one of the dysfunctions I've brought is that I'm not a big fan of corporate prayer. Uh, the upside to that is I'm a really big fan of individual prayer, not as putting a whole bunch of things to God in terms of lists, but of reverencing that time with God and trying to be uh, tuned in in terms of listening, what I would call solitude. Like I'm a big fan of that. And so the upside is you, you get a whole heck of a lot of that with me. Not, not so good on the other stuff. Um, another part of prayer for me is our posture is very, very casual. Um, if you wanted to say uh, to Daniel, if you brought Daniel back today and you just showed him video clips of people praying and you asked him, who are the followers of Yahweh? I think he would pick the video clip with Muslims. I don't think he would pick the video clip with uh, us, the way we're sitting in our chairs um, at the end of small group or, or, or running between things and throwing up what we would call a couple Hail Mary prayers or something like that. There's a reverence that we see in Scripture to prayer that I don't think we see in modern Christianity. You see this even when Peter in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Peter is in prison and they all gather to pray for him and it's, it's, it's there, they're on their knees and on their faces and, and laid out prostrate. Um, uh, am I getting the right word? Okay. Um, and and they, are, they are pleading with God. Uh, when you go to the Wailing Wall in, in Jerusalem, I, I remember asking, what's the, the rocking back and forth that you see from uh, a lot of Orthodox Jews as they're praying? What, what is that? And it's fascinating. It's out of the book of Psalms and, and other places in Scripture where the idea is you pray with your whole body. That your whole body is, is praying. That, that it's not this very casual thing where, where we're doing like a form of silent reading. You know, like when one of my daughters is reading and she reads out loud. I learned this week. Um, you know, and, I'm, and I kept thinking, should I, is now the time to talk to her about silent reading? You know, and you switch from reading out loud to silent reading. You know, I mean, but we kind of, prayer should be reading out loud. It should be fully involved, fully engaged, and, it, and it's coming to the God of the universe. Our God is a consuming fire, and so even though we can come boldly before the throne, we still do it with reverence and awe, and we have to get back to that, that idea of our, our body language being a part of our prayer, that we get on our knees when we pray, that we bury our, our face in in the pillows of the couch when we pray, that tears come out of our eyes when we pray, that we get to the point where we can't find words uh, for what we're trying to say so that we start praying in tongues. Here's my definition of praying in tongues. Have you ever been so frustrated that you just go, ah? Does that communicate something? When we pray in groans, it says in the New Testament, um, there's this, this depth 
of understanding our emotion that words, English words and sentences and good grammar sometimes can't cash out. So at, at least one form of praying in tongues is simply uttering these groans that this human condition, uh, human condition that I bring to you, God, and lay in front of you, God, in prayer, I just don't know how to express it other than through my tears and, and, and my groans. But there's something about our prayer that has to change. And here's the interesting thing. Um, the phrase, giving thanks, if you can read it on the screen. Uh, Daniel's walking into a trap. He doesn't care. He's not, he's not concerned by it. He's going to trust God. He walks right into a trap, gets down on his knees, and he doesn't say, it's not fair, God. He doesn't say, why, God? Um, he doesn't say, smite them, God. He starts by saying, God, there's so much I have to be thankful for. Your blessings are new every morning. This air that I breathe, this opportunity to pray to you, this opportunity to serve you, even if it means I get thrown in a lion's den or, or whatever it might look like, um, I give you thanks. So we see Daniel is this young guy, comes in before, uh, relatively before the age of accountability, ostensibly. Um, his way of praying has a lot to teach us. And then I think the content of how he prays. So if you turn over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel was, was there under several kings. This is now Darius. Um, but he's, he's under several kings, and he gets this vision about Jerusalem having to suffer for 70 years, um, kind of paying back the Sabbath that had been robbed, that, that God had been deprived of, the land had been deprived of, and before they're able to return. And so he goes to God, and, and he prays. And I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Um, that's verse 3, chapter 9. Real quickly on that, you notice something again. He's going to God, and he's pleading with God, so there's a ton of emotion. He does it in fasting, which means he's going to deprive himself of basic sustenance or basic pleasure because he's setting himself uh, aside for this conversation with God. That's, we've, it's, a, it's something we've lost in the modern church this relationship between prayer and fasting. And if you really want to hear from God, my question would, would, would be, how hard have you leaned in to hear from him? I, I talk to people all the time. They want to hear from God. I want, we all want to hear from God. Question, how hard have you leaned in to hear him? And then thirdly, in sackcloth and the ashes. So depriving of sustenance and pleasure, then depriving myself of comfort and taking the posture of humility. I, I am of, but of dust. I don't come in with, with rich garments. You know, the way you're dressed says a lot about stature. And when you put on sackcloth and ashes, you're saying, I am not going to care about the way I look, how I feel. I'm going to lower myself and humble myself. I'm taking um, no pride here, and I'm bringing myself fully to you, God. 
It's an unbelievable testimony of prayer before we even get to the words. Now, here's the words, and I give you the first chunk on the screen. Um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands uh, and your laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. The word we continues. Let me just take it the rest of the way if you want to listen. Verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers, are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is uh, merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers, bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has been, uh, ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has become, uh, come upon us. Uh, boy, uh, let me skip ahead. Verse 15. Now, uh, our, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made your, yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Our Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, here's the last verses on the screen again. It says this, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolate, uh, desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So here's how Daniel challenged me 20 years ago and and continues to challenge me. It's this use of the word we. Daniel wasn't really the one that got Israel sent into captivity. And I think he knows it. Um, But when Daniel prays, he says, we. I don't understand that. If I was praying to God and I was Daniel, it's like, God, I know my father sinned. I know those guys sinned. And therefore, you had to punish us. And it really sucked. Um, But it's been a long time now. That time should be coming to an end. Can you please uh, hurry on with the forgiveness thing and return us? Or it would be a lot more emotional. God, 
um, I'm being persecuted here and I don't think it's fair because I wasn't the one that got us into this mess. They did it. Why don't you punish them? Look at what I'm having to go through. You know I never sinned that way, that I've kept your commands. Even in this foreign place, I've kept your commands. And, and it hurts, and it's not fair, and I'm tired. God, um, you don't see any of that in Daniel. Daniel doesn't have a sense of entitlement. He doesn't have a victim complex. He doesn't have a sense of pride at all. He takes it all into himself and says, I, if I'm the only one praying, if I'm the only one who even gets this, that's okay. Because I'm willing to take it all in me and say we and our and us. And there's something fascinating about that. And so we're talking about laying things down for Lent, preparing ourselves for the crucifixion and resurrection um, that we remember every year of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what Daniel shows us is, I think, the way to be fully human and the way to become Christ-like, which is we're willing to say, it's not about me. Um, it's not about my sense of entitlement. It's not about me being vindicated. It's not about that. It's about going to God and saying, God, we have sinned against you. And I'm willing to be the one to own that. If anyone's going to own it, I'm willing to be that one. Even if I've sinned less than those other people, it doesn't matter because we have sinned against you. When you look at little kids, it's interesting. They fight and then you get the adult that comes in and they're both now fully wrong. I mean, they've fully gone at it with each other. You know what I'm talking about? Um, over ice cream or whatever. But what they're fighting about now, now that the adult is there, is, is to, to try and get an upper hand that says, I'm 51% right. And my sibling is only 49% right. Therefore, direct your attention toward them. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's really what the game is, isn't it? It's a race to say, I might be bad, but I'm not as bad. As, as this person. That's what we do when we're young and immature and, and a human adult comes into the room. When we're older and mature and God comes into the room, the game changes. And we have to, like Daniel, be willing to say, we, God, have sinned. And we're worthy of judgment um, and we come and confess to you. I'm a Democrat. I'm, I'm not. I'm saying if you are. Um, and I believe Republicans have sinned, and I'm willing to say we have sinned. Or I'm a Republican, and I believe Democrats have sinned, but I'm willing to say we have sinned. I look at churches, and I don't like what's going on, in some of them, and I feel like spiritual abuse happens in some, in some of them, but God, I'm willing to come and say, we, we don't get it right. I don't get it right as a Christian. We all kind of mess each other up. And so somehow, God, we need grace 
that you might show us a better way, that we might grow into our best selves in this whole thing called the church. This whole position where we make ourselves immune from whatever's going on and we then criticize everything else as if we have kind of an elevated position to to be on. Like, we can't do that anymore. We say, no, in this conversation, God, we have sinned. Um, In honor of the 50-year anniversary today of Selma, I'll just read for you what Martin Luther King Jr. said. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. I'm here to tell you this morning that whatever it is, you can lay it down. In your divorce, or whatever it is that your spouse did to you, somehow we have to be able to say, God, we... Um, Whatever happened in that other church or in this church, you have to be able to say we. Whatever your thoughts are in America or where America is going or what individualistic and consumeristic society looks like, in your prayer times pleading before a mighty God, we have to learn how to say we. That enemy who has wronged you and destroyed you, as hard as it is, we're supposed to learn how to pray for our enemies, which somehow means we say, God, we, we really devour each other. This stuff really messes things up. I I don't know where it comes from, but obviously it comes from somewhere. Someone did that to them and, and hurt people hurt people or something happened in their home or I don't know. But God, we, we really messed this up. Somehow we have to be willing to own that. I've been thinking all week about this, and I'm like, man, I, I thought I was pretty humble. But when I really look at it, all of my petty jealousies are because I don't feel like certain people deserve to be on my level. I mean, think about it. Or the people that I'm really mad at, I don't feel like they deserve what I deserve. That's pride hides in our shadow. And, and, it, and we want to put on better clothes than sackcloth and ashes. And it makes us hard to pray we. But Jesus hanging on a cross, the one who was without sin, who was willing to know all sin for our sake that things could be unified, when we become more Christ-like, as we grow in our spiritual maturity, like Christ, like Daniel, somehow we're willing to say, God, I'll take and I'll own it, even if no one else will. I'm not going to reserve for myself a position of pride or entitlement. I'm willing to lay it down. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer now, together as a community, and then they're going to come up and do the offering. Um, But if you'll pray with me, I'll get us started, and then we'll finish it just together. But our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Louder. Give us this day our daily bread.